Welcome to the online teaching ministry of Pastor Rob Ginter and Farmdale Baptist Church. For more content, visit us online at farmdalebaptist.com. Good morning. If you have your Bibles with you, turn to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4 is where we'll be today. The Hatfields and McCoys, that show that Steve Harvey used to host, and what happened last night between Kentucky and Florida. No people surveyed, by the way. Uh, There is one top answer on the board of what do those things have in common. They are feuds. They are feuds. Two opposing sides coming together and passionate about the outcome. That's, That's what a feud is. So here in Acts chapter 4, I give you a fourth feud that we run upon, a feud to call it lightly. What happens when a Christ-hating culture comes in contact with a Christ-centered gospel? Two opposing forces clashing. And what happens when those two meet? Persecution for the people of God carrying that gospel of the Son of God. Persecution for the church is a result of what happens when a Christ-hating culture encounters a Christ-centered gospel. Now, we know that that is what happens, right? Baking soda and peroxide, all that stuff gets together. Boom. Coke and Mentos, I think that's another one. Those two get together and boom. And if you've ever tried to share the gospel in your workplace, those two get together Boom. And I don't believe, I'm not going to doubt your intelligence. You know what brings that friction. You know what brings that reaction, the gospel and the culture. You know when those two get together that there is a toxic, heated reaction. We figured that out by now. That those two get together, the math equals uncomfortable, heated, passion, difficulty, conflict, to say the least. So what do we do? Well, what could we do? You realize that speaking for Christ and not just trying to live a good life is the example that we see here in the book of Acts. You know that sharing the gospel is what you're supposed to do. But if, my friends, we remove Christ from the gospel and still try to speak in more vague generalities, the culture will not conflict with us. Or if we just stay silent the culture will not conflict with us. If one of those two things happen, there's no conflict, there's no fight, there's no rub. Problem is, is that that is not Christian faithfulness. Not at all. And the overarching point that we see here in Acts chapter 4 is that persecution follows gospel faithfulness. Persecution doesn't happen without gospel faithfulness. It really doesn't. So for some of us, we could look at this and go, okay, you are giving us a path to an easier life. But that's not what I'm doing. Because that easier life will incur the judgment of God. So what I'm doing is telling you how you ought to go on anyway, knowing that gospel faithfulness brings about persecution. 
So let's look at it here in Acts chapter 4. What happens is that Peter and John has have healed a beggar at this point in Acts chapter 3 last week. So you see the devotions in Acts chapter 2, 47, uh, 2 through 49, in which they, they devoted themselves to the apostles' preaching, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, the fellowship. And, and in chapter 3, what happens then is they, the, the rubber meets the road. The ministry goes out into the marketplace. The ministry hits the marketplace and they raise up this beggar off of his begging bed. Then, as a result in that lovely, lavish introduction, they preach the gospel. Peter and John says, why are you looking at us like we did this? Let me tell you about the one who did this, who raised you off your begging bed. He was one who was raised from the dead. And he presented Christ to these people. Well, and then this happens here in Acts chapter 4. If you look at Acts chapter 4 verse 1, and as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captains of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. So what we look at here, what we see these were the people. If you remember back in Luke that we have never walked through together, but back in Luke, when you read it on your own, you realize that these were the groups of people who joined the crowd, who arrested Jesus and crucified him. That's who came upon Jesus's followers. It's insanity if we think following Jesus will get us a different result than Jesus got. It's insanity if we think that following the followers of Jesus, following Jesus' example, will give us a different a different result than the followers of Jesus got and that Jesus got. So ours is double insanity. If we think following them, following him is going to get anything different than him and them. So what happens here is that these people who didn't like Jesus don't like his followers. These people who persecuted Jesus persecute his followers. And let me remind you that when you go to Taco Bell and you say, I don't want tomatoes on that crunch wrap. And they have the audacity Put those nasty red things on that crunch wrap. And you open that bad boy up, you take a bite into not what you ordered. That is not persecution. I don't know who, I don't know who needs to hear this, you know, like that is not persecution. That's not. You see, because these people come up, and in the first verse, we reminded that there are Christ-hating culture. These were the ones who were against Jesus. And here's why they're against Jesus. Verse 2 says that they are annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. So this isn't, I didn't order tomatoes on that. And I'm upset. And why did they put tomatoes on something I, they know I'm allergic. No, this is, because of Christ. This is because of Christ. 
This isn't uncomfortableness in life. This isn't I didn't get what I ordered. This is I got the gospel out there and they hated the gospel and they rejected the gospel and they they rejected the messenger of the gospel. So what we see here is a Christ-hating culture and a Christ-centered gospel. So who are these people? They were the people who were against Jesus. And why are they annoyed? Because they preached Christ. They preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. The message of the gospel is offensive to this culture. And it is popular in our day to remove anything that is offensive. Offensive. Now, people who normally say something like that then try to unnecessarily offend later on. And that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about letting our offense be Christ. I mean, that is enough. That's enough offense. They don't need your breath in it. You know what I mean? Like Christ is what should be offensive about us. Not our attitudes. So they weren't preaching moralism, steps to a better life. It was centered around the message that God created everything, was rejected by humanity in the flesh, and he was killed and he got out of the grave. And because of that, you ought to turn from everything you've done against God and trust, bank your entire life on him alone. That was why they were persecuted. Jesus said himself in John 15, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So hostile to Christ culture, hostile to Christ-centered gospel. And that is the storm, my friends, that we step into here in Acts chapter 4. So we see what we ought to do in light of the persecution that follows the gospel. What do we do? Because persecution follows the gospel. I'm glad you all asked all together at the same time. Well, since persecution follows the gospel, we should suffer expectantly. We should suffer expectantly. And here's the reason why. This happened after the arrest in verse 4. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. So we embrace and expect suffering because God uses it to grow the church. He uses it to grow the church. The word was heard and believed as a result of this. The early church father, Tertullian, said the seed of the church is the blood of the Christian. That's the picture of verse 4. The apostles went into prison and the numbers in the church went through the roof. We haven't experienced anything like that in our country in this era. But when you look at church church history, it was like that. They weren't people whose feelings were hurt because they put tomatoes on their crunch wrap. It was more than that. Acts chapter 4, the persecution against Peter and John did not stop thousands of people from submitting to Christ as a result. Likewise, we should not shun persecution because God uses it to purify and grow His church. 
Now, why would we embrace it? Why would we do suffer expectantly because of persecution? Well, because we understand that it has eternal value. That's what we see in Acts chapter 4. They spent a night in jail. Meanwhile, 5,000 had trusted in Christ. Eternal things are at stake. That's why we would embrace anything and everything that comes along this road as we're following Christ on it. So this is far, far from our house, potentially. Because many of us wake up wondering what where we're going to be in five years. Five years from now, we're curious what we're going to do. Meanwhile, few of us consider where we're going to be in 500 years from now. Or where our family and friends are going to be in 500 years from now. And you think, well, they'll all be dead. Yeah, but they're going to be somewhere after death. And if we kept that in mind, we would embrace and expect persecution. That's what we would do. Not only that, in light of this persecution that follows the gospel, should we remove one of the components? No. Secondly, we should speak the gospel. So Jesus is the reason they were put in prison, and Jesus is who they preached when they got interrogated. Notice his response in verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. So they preached the gospel while in chains, never stopped focusing on the gospel. It's good to see as many pictures of this as we can see in our lives. Another one was uh, Richard Wormbrand, who was imprisoned by communists in Romania for Christ. And here's what he said about his time in prison. He said it was strictly forbidden to preach to other prisoners. We understood that whoever was caught doing this received a severe beating. A number of us decided to pay the price for the privilege of preaching. So we accepted their terms. It was a deal we made. We preached and they beat us. We were happy preaching. They were happy beating us. So everyone was happy. That was the attitude of Peter and John. They asked them, what power gives you the right to do these things you do? And they go, I'm glad you asked that. Let me tell you what gives me the power and the right to do that. And then they began to share Christ. And here's what they say about him and what it all comes down to in verse 11. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. We we quote that all the time. Do you realize that it is the response of someone on trial? That verse is the response of someone on trial. And they're sharing the gospel with those people that are trying them and saying, Jesus is the one that you rejected. But here's the issue with your rejection of Jesus. There is salvation in no one else. And there is no name, no other name given among men under heaven 
then you must be saved. Here is the reality before their eyes that everything in this passage is built on. This is why they go to preach. This is why they go to prison. This one consuming, all-surpassing idea that there is a God who created everything and everyone that was ever made. And that God who created everything and everyone who was ever made made demands and commands of his creation that they ought to live a certain way. He made commands that you ought to live a certain way. Your life ought to do certain things. You ought to be a certain person. But here's the problem. We didn't. We didn't do, we didn't live the way he said we ought to live. We didn't do the things that he said we ought to do. The God that created us demanded things of us and we did not do it. Therefore, the Bible calls that sin and we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The glory of God is the bullseye and all of our arrows are in the dirt. That reality is on another planet from us most of the time. That is not a planet we visit. Now, the problem with that is that is why you would endure, suffer expectantly, and still speak the gospel because... There is salvation in no other name. No other name. Built upon the reality of salvation is needed. It is needed. It is necessary. Do you understand how important this is? This isn't five years from now. It's 500 years from now. When it's 500, 500 years from now. Figure that math out. I don't know. 2,500 years from now. Thank you for being impressed. You right there in the second row. Eternal realities are nowhere near us on a lot of the day. Wouldn't you admit it? Heard something that they're trying to produce oxygen on Mars. That's really cool, but I'm I'm breathing over here. You know what I mean? I'm not concerned. Good for them. Good for the Martians. They'll be like, what's a stinky gas they put over here? You know, like, I'm on this planet. I'm not on that one. And we all live separately from the planet, the reality in which that there are eternal things at stake. We don't even live on that planet half of the time. Present company included. Included. Are eternal things on your mind when you wake up? No. Breakfast is. Breakfast is, absolutely breakfast is. But I'm saying we got to get beyond breakfast. We got to get beyond this distractedness that we live in to a point to where we realize that there is salvation in nowhere else, in no one else, but only in Christ. And that's a very big deal. It's a very big deal. The culture around us is completely offended by this. Verse 12. So we as Christians live separately from it. We just don't even 
go there. We're worried about McDonald's internet being down so you can't get the sausage burrito off the app. You know what I mean? Like that's the size of our problems most of the time. Sorry to complain about this morning. Sorry, my bad, you know. Didn't mean to bring out my dirty laundry here. But right, but that's the size of our problems. Meanwhile, there's salvation only in Christ. And the culture is offended at that. That, that that's it. Like that's, there's nowhere. So one, they're offended that the very fact that we're saying salvation is necessary. Like that that's a real problem that God's holy and you're not and you two will not meet in a pleasant way because your sin has separated you from this God that created you. That's offensive. What else is offensive? So if I bought that, Rob, that God is holy and righteous and just and, and I'm not and my sin has separated me, things I've done has separated me from Him, then why aren't the ways to Him buy one, get one free like everybody else and everywhere else? Why aren't there multiple ways to this one holy God? And you can tell right there by that question that the scriptures are smarter than us and that God is wiser than us. Because it never answers why aren't there multiple ways to God? The the biblical writers and the witness of the scriptures are astonished by the fact that there is any way at all to this God. Right? The, the, the bigger mind-blowing fact is that there is a way to the God that we've sinned against. That there is a way to Him. More importantly, that there, the way came to us, wrapped in skin, to die for hum, human sin, up three days out of the grave. Christ, He reigns. And now, there is salvation in no one else, no other name given among men by which we must be saved. So we still speak the gospel. And why would we do that? Because the gospel brings persecution. There's persecution in the gospel. We bring the gospel in the room. Guess who's coming? Persecution. But why would we bring the gospel into the room anyway? Because there is salvation that is necessary. We must be saved. And there's only one way in which we must be saved. And that is through Christ. That's why we go anyway. That's why we do it anyway. So we speak the gospel anyway. Because God loves sinners and He gave His Son for them. And that's the case of all of us. There's only one name who saves. And that's why we share the gospel. But realize that when you do that, Difficulties will come. Trouble will come. I don't want to, I do want to pop your balloon and burst your bubble of illusion, right? That it'll be easy. No, it's going to be hard. It's going to be hard. Welcome to reality. That's just how it is. I'm not inviting you to a a birthday party but inviting you to take up your cross and follow one who took his own cross on your behalf. That's what I'm doing. It's difficult. But because we know the word of God is true, we follow him like that, no matter the cost. 
You know, I heard a, a prosperity preacher once. She was uh, sitting on a speckled throne with mauve. I don't even know what color that is. I do know, actually. Googled it once. Mauve hair sitting on a gold throne with rhinestones talking about how wonderful it is to be a Christian. She said, even if Christianity proved to be untrue, I'd still want to be a Christian because it's the best way to live. That's what she said. It would be hard to get Richard Wormbrand to buy that. I'm going to negotiate with these guards. They let me preach. I let them beat me. It would be hard to get Peter and John to buy that. That even if these things weren't true, then at least you're moral. No, that's not what it is. If they, if they weren't true, we should eat and drink and be merry for tomorrow we all die. First Corinthians 15, Paul says, if Christ is not raised from the dead, then we are of all people most to be pitied. We got lame, we picked lame hobbies. But no, we know Christ is risen from the dead, the first fruit of those who believe. And because we know he is risen from the dead, we pour our lives out in advance of his gospel and we speak his gospel anyway, even if persecution follows it, because he's worthy and our reward is with him. And we live our best life later. Just, just put it, put it off. Trying to live your best life. Just put it off. This, this world's just a warm up. It's just a warm up. So what do we do? Well, since persecution follows the gospel, we suffer expectantly. We still speak the gospel and we submit to God's authority. See, Peter and John withstood this imprisonment the questioning of the chief priests. And we continue to see how they endure here in these verses, in verses 13 through 22. They saw the boldness of these disciples and that they were regular Joes and officially untrained. And they did some math and figured out these guys who wouldn't know anything otherwise or wouldn't be anything otherwise clearly have spent time with Jesus. You know, I remember another guy who had a death wish who made decisions that weren't best for him. I know another guy who spoke like these guys. And we killed him. Now they say he's back. Have you ever had somebody to watch your life and say, you know, I really watched how you went through that. And I can tell that like there's just a, like a, there's something about you going through this really difficult time. How you're making decisions that aren't necessarily best in your own interest right now. Like you're, you're make, you have a different standard of what success looks like. You have a, a different standard of what right and wrong look like compared to the culture. You know, you kind of remind me of somebody else that spoke like that and didn't try to preserve themselves. You kind of look like somebody else, the Lord Jesus. 
Have you ever had anybody say that about you? I don't know if I have. Maybe we should. Huh? And how would we do that? We would have to submit to the authority of God. They recognized they'd been with Jesus in verse 13. But seeing the man who was healed and standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For a notable sign has been performed through them as evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. So what happens in verse 17 and following is they, they beat them and charge them to not speak in the name of Jesus. But Peter in verse 19 and John answered, Whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. That is what they did. It is completely biblical for us to obey authority. It just is. It's right for us to obey the authority of our government if we disagree with them. It's right to do. It's biblical to wear your seatbelt, to go the speed limit. It's right for you to pay your taxes. That's right. It is. First Peter 2.13 We are to be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. So, it's good. It is. However, this verse shows us that there is limitations on our obedience for human institutions. There's a limit to that. There's a limit to those things. When they prohibit us from being obedient to God, we must still be obedient to God. We must disobey them to be faithful to his commands. The disciples here were obeying the primary command from the Lord that we see in the beginning of the book of Acts. Do you remember what it is? To be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the other most parts of the earth. They never forgot their job. They never let anyone stop them from doing their job. They said they cannot but speak of what they've seen and heard. The one thing they couldn't stop doing was what Jesus commanded them to do. One commentator put it, they said the early believers had to be commanded to be quiet while many modern ones have to be commanded to speak. You see the difference? They were, they had to be commanded to be quiet. Meanwhile, we don't have any problem with that, do we? I mean, we talk about all kinds of other things. But I'm talking about be quiet, being quiet about this gospel, and about this one who got out of the grave and beat death and is the only name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. We're okay being quiet about that, aren't we? But they truly encountered the Lord Jesus and truly believed. And they could not but speak of what they have seen and heard. They walked with Jesus, lived their life inside of God, and the only way they defied their government was appealing to a higher authority, the authority of God. It's important to remember we're under them, but they're under him. We're under them, but they're under him. And they were questioned and threatened and sent away. Do you see that word down there in your Bible? Together. They were persecuted and they were unified. I believe those two are related. In our church culture, we're primarily free of major persecution like this, so it's easy to fight about things that we want. To have power struggles and strife and division in the church. Why? Because no one is hunting us. 
It would be a total different story if we're like, we have to figure out how to do two things. One, really, but two, if we could get it. What are those two things? Well, one, we've got to speak of what we've seen and heard, and it would be really great if we lived to do that more. So one, let's get this gospel out, and two, let's stay alive. But even if we can, let's get this gospel out. You see, there are people in other places this morning having that conversation with each other. Let's do these two things, guys. One, let's get this gospel out. And two, let's stay alive so we can get this gospel out. But even if we can't do number two, give or take, let's do number one. Even if we can't do both, we'll pick one, the first one. That's what they're doing here in Acts chapter 4. And they were praying together afterwards. Uh, the, when they were released in verse 23, they went to their friends and reported them. The chief priests and elders have said to them, and they lifted their voice together, and God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and earth and seas and everything in it, who through the mouth of the Lord, da- our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why do the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered against, against the Lord and against his anointed. As a unified body, this is what it looks like when they submitted themselves to the authority of the Lord. They call him Sovereign Lord, and they prayed, believing that he was sovereign. You see, they beat us, and they imprisoned us, and they were mean to us, and they interrogated us. God, and we're going through this, but you know what? You were nowhere near this trouble that I'm in. It's unbiblical. It's unbiblical. No. Sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth. They describe him as the one who is over everything and who made everything. That's what they did. They suffered, came out praying that God was in control of everything in his universe. That you didn't lose control of our situation. You see what actually believing that God has authority does? They addressed him quoting Psalm chapter 2. It's an interesting verse to pray in its original context. The psalmist is referring to the gathering of the most important people on the planet who all submitted, who refused to submit to God as a ruler. Like that's the context here. They pray and they go, God, you are in charge. And they, they pray Psalm 2 in which that the kings of the earth set themselves against God. And here's why we submit to the authority of God. Because every president in every country and every ruler and every mayor and governor and everyone between could get all in one room and declare an all-out war on God. They could. And you know his response to that? Psalm 2-4. He who sits in heaven in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. He laughs. What is his response to the rulers of the earth mutinying against him? Well, he sets his son on Zion. 
He commands them to kiss the son. That's a sign of submission and loyalty. He tells them to be loyal to his son. Why? Because he could be angry and you could perish in his way. Why should the church endure persecution and get the gospel out no matter what it costs us? Because the most powerful among us could get together and God laughs at them. He thinks it's funny that they think that they could go against him. And what is his response? His son. What's God's response to the, the biggest, baddest boys on the block? His son in the grave and up out of it for sinners. That's what it is. And the only way that you would still get that gospel out and speak for Christ in work, at home, in your family, Knowing that it follows persecution is to really submit to the authority of God, knowing that God's Son is His response to all of these things. You must really believe, really be submitted to His authority. Why? Because if you tried to speak for Christ and they, they cost you something, the little kingdom that you're building might crumble. The plans that you made might be thwarted. But that's that's not true for one who really submits to the authority of God. I want to encourage you to be faithful as a gospel witness wherever you are. You know, it's going to cost. It's going to, it's going to cost. It, it does. It will. Verse 28. What does the sovereign Lord do? They said, uh, the kings and the people gathered against together to Jesus this sovereign Lord does whatever his hand and his plan had predestined to take place. In verse 28, they were all together against Jesus, but all they did was play their part in the plan of God. So if you're going through it, you're weighing the cost of opening your mouth, right? Let's, let's not forget what we're talking about here. In the book of Acts, so far, what brings the pressure? A message. A message. That's what this is about. I don't care if they healed a guy. That's fine. That's good. Good for him and his family. He's not a beggar anymore. He annoyed us all anyway. No, this is about the gospel. This is about the gospel. And that's where the pushback comes. You see, God is sovereign even in the suffering that you will endure getting the gospel out there. He's sovereign in that. Warren Wiersbe puts it like this. When God puts his own people into the furnace, he keeps his, his eye on the clock and his hand on the thermostat. He is still in charge of us in the midst of suffering. Being persecuted for the gospel. I heard another guy say he knows how long and how much. He is not an arsonist, but a refiner. That's why we would go on. Because persecution follows gospel faithfulness and we would keep on being faithful to the spread of the gospel. Knowing that God is sovereign. And he's in charge and in control. 
In their prayer to God, they, they believed this. They submitted to his authority, confessed how sovereign he was. And look at verse 29. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Do you see what happens here? Boldness. They asked for God to give them boldness. Boldness. Meanwhile, I'm thinking through this verse, I'm looking in the mirror and let me tell you what I see in the mirror when I look at this verse. I see a guy who would probably rather pray for his situation to change. If I look at him, that's what makes me sick about him, right? That he would rather pray to get out of the difficult situation than to get the gospel through a difficult situation. That's one of the things that makes me sick about him. Oh, that the Lord would change me and all of us to pray like this. In verse 29, look on their threats and grant us to keep speaking with boldness. When's the last time that you said somebody's given me a really hard time for being a Christian? Let me be bold instead of make them go away. That's the result. Like if God is really in charge, right? He's either sovereign or he's not. He can't be partly God. He either is or he isn't. And I'm saying he is. So because he is, we must submit to his authority. And that's why we would persevere through the gospel with, with the gospel anyway. Would the Lord grant to us a desire for a more faithful life instead of an easier one? Wouldn't it be so? In the book of Revelation, uh, R.C. Sproul comments on this. He says, when the book of Revelation speaks of the final judgment of God, he talks about those who, whom he will send into the lake of fire first. He's talking about the murderers and adulterers and so on. So what is the first group that goes into the lake of fire? Do you know? The cowards. The cowards. And if anything marks the church at the beginning of the 21st century, it's cowardliness. It's cowardliness. If anything describes the difference between us and the first century church, it is a lack of boldness. It's a lack of boldness. Now, remember, I'm not saying rudeness. I'm saying boldness. See, there's a difference. And we read our Bibles, repent of our own personalities, so we can be bold instead of rude. It's different. It's not the same thing. And let me, let me just be honest with you guys. The mission, mission of making disciples of all nations will not come through a group of people dodging difficulty and will not conquer the world through a group of people who refuses to stand in the middle of persecution. It's just not going to happen like that. It's going to happen through somebody else. It's not going to come through the cowards. Gospel is not going to go through the mouth of a coward. As one pastor put it one time, it's two of the most uncomfortable people talking about the most important thing on the face of the planet. That is what getting the gospel out is. Two of the most uncomfortable people on the planet talking about the most important thing that there ever was and ever is and ever will be. That's what it is. So we will face intense opposition, but we too must be intense for the advancement of the gospel. Persecution is going to come. When it comes, will we be bold in the midst of it? Are you bold enough to ask for boldness? 
Verse 31 is the result of this prayer. And when they prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. That's what they did. I mentioned the Hatfields and McCoys at the beginning. In the Hatfields and McCoys, there was an intense debate between them starting around the Civil War. And then there was this whole pig thing that got involved. I don't know if you know the story, but they were Confederates and one of them defected and there was a murder. And then there were some pigs that got stolen and they tried to marry part of their family and it got intense and there was blood and murder and death and the bloodiest and the most well-known feud in our country. It's intense and people were dead and they're in the grave because of it. Well, somewhere around 1976, there debuted something else that was kind of based on this moment. A hundred people surveyed top five answers on the board. What game is that? The family feud. So they get descendants of the Hatfields and McCoys to come on to this game show in 1979. And they, they competed against it against one another on this game show. And I think they gave somebody a pig because they thought it was funny as part of this. And you say, what are you, why are you bringing that up? Well, because there was once a really real passionate feud that these people found themselves in the midst of. But time has passed and now it's a game. It's a game. You see, the Christ-hating culture and the Christ-centered gospel is in the midst of an intense, passionate feud. There's blood and people going in the ground in death. But among us in our day, has all the passion been removed? All the original players and components gone? Has it all now turned into a game? You see, if one of the Hatfields and McCoys actually showed up, a real one, okay? They showed up in 1976 to that guy who stole all their hogs and killed their brother, do you think they'd play games or do you think they'd bear arms? That, my friends, is what happens when someone talks about the gospel in the God-hating culture. You see, the God-hating culture is still here. It didn't go anywhere. It didn't advance. It didn't evolve. We're not all more tolerant and warm and fuzzy and hug each other and braid each other's hair and get friendship bracelets with the world. That's not how it is. They show up to the plate every day. They do what they do. They're the original member of the Christ-hating culture still here. He's still there. But what about us? What did we do? Well, if we just keep those two components apart, then our terms of peace with this Christ-hating culture, silence. Silence. No. When a real man or woman who is not playing, who, who's done playing games, who's tired about trying to figure out their best and easiest life, when that person takes the real, true gospel of God being holy, man being desperately sinful, and God becoming a man in the place of the sinner, dying for their sins and rising on the third day, now he, alive after death, commands that you turn from worshiping everything else and worship only him when a man who has done playing games brings that gospel into the Christ-hating culture. What, do, my friends, do you think is going to happen? Conflict. The feud would continue. 
But you know what else would continue? Faithfulness. Faithfulness. They will hate you. Your Father in heaven, Matthew 5, says there's a blessing for that. There's a blessing. So here's the terms of your surrender. What are your, because this isn't a game. Silence. Fit in. Fade back. Sit down. We can't. We can't sit down because there is one who got up. And he got out of the grave and he makes all the rules. And he is God's response to this world. So we go to people and we tell them, kiss the sun. Kiss the sun. Here's the terms of your surrender. Repent and believe. So has anybody in this place got a Christian in your family? Spirit of God in you to be faithful to the gospel witness in your sphere of influence? Or is that persecution just enough to turn it off and make you sit down? I'm saying it can't be. We have to be people who cannot but speak of what we've seen and heard. Silence is not good enough. If you are not a Christian, you see, God's response to the world is His Son. God loved the world and gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish because outside of Him, there's perishing. That's it. There's destruction and death and wrath and punishment and fury in the eyes of a holy God. Every man and woman will stand before God and be judged based on their response to His Son. You've rebelled against God and His Son died in your place for your sins. Turn from your sins and trust fully in the Lord Jesus. If you are a Christian, you know that the gospel faithfulness produces persecution. Going through persecution produces more faithfulness. So we still go. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your scriptures. We thank you for your son who died in our place. Make us more willing to take up our crosses and follow him no matter what the cost. Please help us and have mercy on us. In Jesus' name, amen.